Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. It is springtime, and I want to do some spring cleaning. So I want to answer every single backlogged email question that all of you have sent in. I'm going to talk about using psychedelics and therapy in this episode. I'm going to talk this this episode might be hours long by the way. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to answer every single email question that has been backlogged to me. Chronic pain I'm going to talk about. That's important. We talk about Bowen and Bowenian theory, agoraphobia, attachment theory and parenting, body dysmorphia, the philosophy of uh, IFS or internal family systems. I'm going to talk about parenting a little bit more, parenting a little bit more, um, PTSD and panic disorder, anger management, trauma-informed care, high emotional influence family, stigma towards social anxiety, somatic disorders, military stuff, uh, borderline, uh, cerebral palsy, and other disabilities, uh, coming out in college as a woman, OCD, let's see what else, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, and some more things. So those are all the things I'm going to talk about. This is going to be a patron-only episode. I don't know exactly why, but it's just been a while since I've done one. <laughs> and um, with each of these things, I, I'm, I'm not going to do a full-blown episode, but I did some research on each of these things, so I don't know. I just thought I'd make this a patron-only episode. This actually might be more than one episode because it might take me longer to actually answer everyone's questions. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Again, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you want access to this, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. Come on, join the club, people. It's a fun club to be in, a patron of Psychology in Seattle. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone. Patrons, loves you, loves, loves you, loves you so much. This first uh, question was from patron Adam. Adam asked if I could talk about using psychedelics in therapy or LSD or magic mushrooms or whatever. And so I've done a little bit of research into this. As a caveat before I go into it is I'm definitely no expert in this area. There are things in in, in which I am an expert, and this is not one of those things. I've taken a fair amount of classes and you know, worked side-by-side side with researchers and psychiatrists and biologists of the brain, so I can probably speak with a little bit more authority than the average person, but you know, understand that um, this is not my area. So if you're an expert in this area, you're going you're gonna to say, well, you know, okay, the, there's more to it than that. But just as an overview... Let's go into it here. So just some definitions. When we're using the term psychedelic therapy, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean we're using a class of drugs that are commonly called psychedelics. Um, and there are other terms that have been used like hallucinogen or uh, psychotomimetic. I've never heard that one pronounced before. Psychotomimetic or fantasticum. Fantasticum. Wow, that sounds dirty. But we don't use the term hallucinogen so much in the research literature because hallucinogens, uh, because hallucinations aren't always present. Um, in fact, they're kind of rare when you're using psychedelics. And 
um, we tend not to use psychotomimetic because that basically means it mimics psychosis. And I think that most researchers would agree that psychedelics don't really mimic psychosis or I don't know. It's an interesting way to put it. And, you know, fantasticum just sounds weird. So we're not going to use that one either. So what defines a psychedelic as opposed to other agents or drugs or things in nature? Well, there are fuzzy boundaries about what is considered a psychedelic and what is not. Um, For example, there are different classifications that differentiate between psychedelics like LSD and magic mushrooms, between things like poisons and um, intoxicants, which can produce similar effects of of, um, psychedelics. So it just kind of depends on how you want to classify things. We can definitely agree that alcohol and benzodiazepines are different than psychedelics, but there are some other things that are kind of like, is that really considered a psychedelic or not? Anyway, um, so basically the definition of a psychedelic uh, definition literature, paraphrased by me, is basically an agent or drug or something from nature that causes changes in perception, cognition, and mood. So... From that definition, we can see pretty general <laughs> uh, changes in perception, cognition, and mood. Um, but, you know, if you've ever used a psychedelic, you know that doesn't really sum it up. I would suspect that there's really no way to describe psychedelic use and the effect it has uh, in, a, in a word format. You kind of have to experience it. And I think that really goes true for any substance. Um, unless you have an analogy, you know, sometimes I'll, people will say like, oh, you know, what are ADHD medications like? And I'll just say like, well, have you ever drank a lot of coffee <laughs> or have you ever been sort of buzzed on coffee where you kind of feel happy and energetic and talkative and stuff? Well, you know, that's, that's what that's like. That's what cocaine is like. That's what nicotine does for the most part. Um, you know, these are all stimulants, so they tend to do a similar thing. So sometimes you can sort of say, oh, well, have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? And then say, okay, well, it's sort of like that with some differences. But when it comes to psychedelics, you know, most people haven't used any psychedelics. So it's hard to say, you know, is, have you ever used this analog- analogy substance? So it's hard. And plus, it's pretty varied depending on who it is and your experience, the context you're in, the type you're using. So it's hard to describe, and I find that um, a lot of the written descriptions of psychedelics are pretty bad. Um, so I'll just say you got to have used it to know it. There are a number of different types of psychedelics. Uh, in general, the, there are some that mimic acetylcholine in the brain. This, you know, like belladonna plant will do this. There are others that mimic norepinephrine or dopamine and dopamine, sorry, in the brain. This is basically MDMA, ecstasy, molly, uh, mescaline, this kind of thing. There are others that mimic serotonin. This is LSD and psilocybin. There are others that work on the glutamate receptors, and there are others that work on opioid receptors. So there's a lot of different paths to a psychedelic experience in the brain, which is kind of interesting to think about that. A lot of different plants in nature cause us to experience a psychedelic effect. And you just have to wonder about the evolution of that, right? Is that an accident? Is that sort of on purpose? You know, meaning that are we evolved to actually uh, enjoy psychedelics or something, you know, um, cause they were in nature and, um, you know, anyway. So 
What about the history? Okay. So if we, in brief, we can say that people have been using psychedelics for various different purposes since the beginning of our species in all likelihood. People might have heard about stories of shamans using psychedelics in their rituals, religious experiences with, you know, hallucinations or altered states. And, you know, it makes sense. Imagine you're someone pre-science and your tribe comes upon this plant and discover that this thing makes you have a psychedelic experience. You can imagine that it would feel like you were entering the spirit realm or something. So it made sense that it was used a lot to um, in those ways. Um, that is my very uh, terrible explanation of history. <laughs> uh, fast forwarding to the 1950s in the Western in Western society, we have some research on psychedelics as uh, the sort of research boom in psychiatry and psychology starts to take hold. And they started looking at mushrooms, psilocybin, and LSD. LSD was developed in the 40s in Switzerland, so that was something that was kind of preferred because it was something you could synthesize. You didn't have to depend on a varying dosage in among nature's plants. Um, and there's a fair amount of research in the 50s, and it was similar to any other psychoactive substance of the time, like lithium or benzodiazepines, if benzos were around at the time. I think they were. Um, and there was research, you know, it's like, okay, this thing does this thing on the brain. Let's, let's see what it can cure or what else it does. And let's make variations. But there wasn't a ton of research on it because there just wasn't a ton of research in, in, in any of these areas. Um, so because it just wasn't a lot of money, but, but there was some, there was some research. Then going into the 1960s, more research is done. They start looking at depression they start looking at autistic people with psychedelics. They start looking at prison inmates, trying to help them to make them more docile in prisons. There's a lot that can be said about the 60s and psychedelics and research and culture. But in a nutshell, I couldn't talk about history and the 60s and psychedelics without mentioning Timothy Leary who was a scientist who uh, ran some experience, uh, some experiments with LSD. Apparently he had some very questionable ethical uh, things going on with his research. And he's a very interesting figure in American history. Uh, you know, he was famous for trying to talk about, he was a, you know, a famous professor speaker who would travel around in the counterculture and talking about how LSD was going to save the world. Um, and, psychedelics became associated with counterculture during the 60s. So it's hard for us to really imagine LSD, magic mushrooms, this kind of stuff, the way that they saw it pre the 60s. It's similar to opium, this kind of thing, or marijuana, for example. It's, it's maybe easier for us now as we start to destigmatize marijuana. But there was a time when LSD, psilocybin, these kinds of things, they weren't really the stigmatized mega drug that we see it today. It was just something kind of on the fringe that only some people knew about. And it was just like, Oh, have you tried this thing? It's sort of like what, you know, Freud and many other of, of his contemporaries used cocaine, like out in the open. It was just like another thing that people used. And so similar to caffeine or, um, I don't know, whatever people use on their regular life. And so it, 
uh, so psychedelics became uh, through the '60s very much associated with counterculture, and and the counterculture in the '60s to Americans was very scary to the average American. We tend to paint history of the '60s as this free love, you know. M- opening of minds kind of decade. And for some it was, for sure. But for the vast majority of Americans, it was just another decade. And you had all these hippies running around using drugs and doing all these scary things. And so to, the, to most Americans and the voters, they, they weren't really into the psychedelic 60s, the way, that, the way that the counterculture was, the way that young people and rebels were. And so, or considered rebels anyway. So it was very scary, and it was a very scary time for Americans. Communism was a serious threat, or you know, USSR, China, the, you know, these places were you know serious threats. They they literally wanted to wipe us off the planet um, in the way that we wanted to wipe them off the planet, or at least our governments weren't too happy with each other. Um, there was concern about like mind control and people dropping out of society and there were riots in the streets. There was violence against police and politicians, some justified, some not. And there was domestic terrorism. It was just a very scary time. You know, people talk about make America great again. And you're just like, um, you realize like the late sixties, early seventies were, um, some very wonderful times in terms of progressing our society forward. But some very, very terrible times. There were terrible things that our society was up to during that time. So it's very scary to Americans. And long story short, among lots of different consequences of that, uh, politicians essentially made all psychedelics illegal, extremely illegal. So if you want a good laugh, just read the federal law passed in 1970 that you know made all the Schedule One through, I think, Schedule Four drugs signed by Nixon. It's, it's a really funny thing because when you look at the rank, you know, there's certain drugs that are considered perhaps more dangerous or less useful to society and some drugs that are considered less dangerous and more useful to society. And you just see the spectrum of things and you just, you can just see politicians standing around going like, oh, okay, let's put this there and let's put that there. I'm sure they had some researchers on board to some extent, but anyway, it's just a kind of a funny little list. Um, so, Basically, after 1970, with the um, illegalization of this drug and many others, it basically made it impossible to research psychedelics in psychiatry and psychology, much to the lament of many researchers and psychiatrists. They would come forward and say, look, okay, I get it. You don't want kids using this sort of stuff. Fine. Stop them from using it. But we still need to research this stuff, you know. We also don't want kids running around with benzodiazepines in their pocket without a prescription, right? So, you know, sure, let's let's help our society not use drugs that are bad for them, fine. But don't take away our ability to research this thing. And that's what the government did uh, because of political and fear-based reasons. So basically from 1970 until recently, there's been almost no research, just almost nothing. So we really don't know that much. However, recently, with loosening cultural mores and um, perhaps regulations, there's been some minimal, very minimal research with psychedelics. For example, with psilocybin, which is from mushrooms, LSD, which is synthetic, mescaline from peyote, and and others. Um, Now, first off, uh, you can't really talk about psychedelics without talking about why people use them recreationally. 
people use psychedelics re- recreationally because it can be a powerful experience for people. People can emerge upon using psychedelics with profound meanings that last them the rest of their life. You'll hear people say, I've, I've only used psychedelics two times in my life, and both times were the most important, most wonderful eight hours of my entire life. I, I learned so many things about myself and the world, and, and I've carried those wisdoms with me throughout my life. So that's just, the, you know, you can't really refute that, that, that that's something. Um, and that can be therapeutic, right? So, uh, you know, like with alcohol, for example, uh, most people have been at least a little tipsy. We don't have to say, okay, um, alcohol therapeutically can be used to treat social anxiety. You know, all we have to say is like, look, alcohol helps people to relax. It helps people to socialize. It helps people to um, kick back and, you know, you know, have some meaning in their life. You know, they share a couple of drinks with their friend or their spouse, and it's a meaningful thing for them. And we don't have, and that can be quote unquote therapeutic. We don't have to, you know, point towards all these clinical things to say that there's a justifiable quote unquote therapeutic reason for these things. Um, now, having said that, there are side effects, obviously, to alcohol, psychedelics, and other substances. But anyway, there is some preliminary results that indicate that it might help treat addiction. Uh, and I say might because we don't really know yet. Um, and some addiction people will say, look, even if it did kind of help with addiction, you're just replacing one drug with another. So, you know, but it makes some sense because some psychedelics work on the dopamine and serotonin systems, which have been associated with helping with addiction. So, so it seems like it's likely to be somewhat helpful, at least who knows, maybe it'll be, you know, grandly helpful if that's a word. Research has also looked into using psychedelics with people who have terminal illness and who are about to die. So you have people in hospice or otherwise who are who know or you know they're they're fairly certain that they're going to die within the next month or two or three or something, and they have used psychedelics to help those people essentially cope with the experience to. Um, connect with the universe, to be more relaxed, to find meaning in life a little bit more, and it seems to help with some people. It's also been used to uh, help treat PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. This is perhaps the most popular thing that I see people ask me about. They'll be like, you know, what about psychedelics and PTSD? There's some interesting preliminary studies. Again, very hard to tell at this point, but it seems to involve the following mechanism, which I can see absolutely working. Psychedelics seem to uh, make it uh, so. You, so let me explain PTSD. So when you go through a trauma, like witnessing someone dying, or you think you're going to die, or you're being raped, or you know these very scary circumstances that happen to you your brain encodes those memories as very horrible. You're just like all these horrible associations with it. Well, the theory goes that in order for us to recover from negative events, we have to think about them for a while afterwards. You know, like your, your dog dies, for example, and 
you, you have to think about it. You have to kind of mull it over in your mind. What does it mean? How did she die? You know, what happened? Did I do anything wrong? You, 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 that's just the normal part of recovering from a difficult experience. You get in a car accident. You think, was it my fault? Was it the other person's fault? You know, what do I need to do to avoid this from happening in the future? There's just a lot of thinking and talking and processing that has to happen. Well, when you go through a significant horrible event, and particularly if you're not provided any kind of support, the the brain it, it it learns that that memory is actually this thing to be avoided, and so it will avoid thinking about that thing. And so there's no ability to kind of process that memory because when the brain, when the mind start approaches that memory, the brain experiences a tremendous amount of distress and says, "Don't go there." And then the person learns to avoid it, and that's where PTSD emerges from. Essentially, is from that process because PTSD is marked by avoiding the memory by a sort of demoralized uh, mood of just like, why am I here? What, what's happening? An irritability prone to anger. Sometimes um, flashbacks when the memories suddenly come back. And the idea goes with psychedelics is that they might actually help people to recall those memories without the memories becoming too overwhelming. And this makes total this makes total uh, sense to me. Uh, I had a very similar experience with with my mild PTSD when it came to medical PTSD. So I had some uh, traumatic events, uh, not horrible, but horrible to me, I guess, with some medical procedures a long time ago, and I developed an extreme traumatic reaction to any medical treatment or thought or anything. Um, I, I give this example sometimes. Uh, the first time I noticed this was I went to the eye doctor and they put those eye drops in my eyes to dilate my pupils. I'd had this happen, you know, dozens of times prior to that. And for some reason, just putting that drop in just one of my eyes, by the way, she, she just put it in one of my eyes. My body uh, went into full like trauma reaction where I was sweating and I was, you know, my heart was pounding and, and my my mind was saying, what's the deal? It's just the eye dilating, you know, uh, eye drops, who cares? But my body was not having it. And from then on, it was just really hard. So the way uh, that I recovered was by treating myself and my own PTSD, which, which worked for the most part. But, um, and today I can have full on medical procedures done to me um, and everything's fine. But part of the, re- part of my recovery was, I had this uh, procedure done in, in my mouth. I, I had surgery in my mouth, and I was going to be completely awake the whole time. And the dentist gave me a bunch of Valium. And I'd, I'd, I think I might have taken a benzodiazepine before, maybe briefly, but not really. Or maybe I never took it. I don't know. But this is the first time I remember taking one. This is, I don't know, three or four years ago. And I took the benzo, I took the Valium, and it was a good dose, pretty solid dose of Valium. And I felt, you know, a little loopy. I felt a little drunk, if you will, but not, not you know, nothing really super noticeable. But what happened was during the procedure, I would normally have had a billion percent anxiety during it. Because, there, you know, he was drilling into my into my jaw several times. He was like flapping back the gums. He was ripping stuff out. He was putting stuff in. It's 
pretty involved. It's an implant, if you're aware of such a thing. Um, so normally I'd, I wouldn't even have been able to do it. I just would have been like, no, this isn't going to work. Or I would have fainted literally or other kinds of things. But on that pretty good dose of Valium, I was 110% fine with what was happening. There was no distress, not even a single iota of distress and anxiety because the drug, you know, benzos slow down the brain to the point where it doesn't have time to sort of catch up to get the motor running on the fight or flight response. That's my technical uh, explanation of it. And after that, I could experience, I could, I, so even though I was drugged up during the time, my brain apparently still encoded that as a recovery experience where my brain was like, oh, having a medical procedure isn't actually that bad. So even though I was drugged up, my brain in- interpreted it or my body interpreted it as, oh, medical procedures aren't bad. And my body didn't say you need to be on Valium every time because the next time I had a medical procedure, I didn't use any benzos and I had almost no anxiety. It was weird. It, like that one, ex- one could say if I wrote this story, which I actually wouldn't write it this way because I think it was, it involved more things. But if I chose to, I could say that I had tremendous PTSD. I used Valium once in this one experience and from that point forward, I never had PTSD again. So benzos cured my PTSD. Valium cured my PTSD. That's not the story I would tell. I would say it was a part of it for sure. But, but one could write that story. Well, it seems that psychedelics might have a similar effect. Psychedelics are very different from benzodiazepines, but they seem to have a similar effect in that as you recall trauma doesn't become as overwhelming to the individual. And therefore, as so, um, again, in a nutshell, in order to treat PTSD, often you have to expose yourself to the original trauma. So for me, I had to be exposed to some sort of medical procedure that was scary to me so that my brain could habituate to that and not be freaked out by it anymore. I had to, be, you, I had to get used to going through medical procedures. My body had to get used to going through medical procedures. Well, when it comes to trauma that happened to the past that you can't really recreate in the, in the present or you can't ethically recreate in the present, like being raped or seeing someone die or you know, being choked or mugged or something, you can't really recreate that. Well, what people do is they will, rem- they will remember those experiences as a way of exposing themselves to that memory as a way of trying to get their body to, to habituate. So therefore, psychedelics seem to have a similar effect as benzos in a, in a different way. So it makes total sense that I can imagine psychedelics helping, as some research seems to indicate, and I could see that it being, you know, one of the things that people might use in the future. Also, uh, not a lot of re- not a lot of research on this, or no research on this, and uh, no talk about this. But you know, benzo or uh, psychedelics have a lot of positive effects on people's lives that go beyond any sort of diagnosis in the DSM. As I've talked about before, most of my clients, if not all, in my 20 years, have 20 plus years, have come to me with problems that do not fit in the DSM, meaning that there's no diagnosis that I'm treating. They just come to me and they're like, I don't know, I think my life is in shambles right now. Or I don't know, I feel like my family is going down the tubes. Or I don't know, I feel like I have no meaning in my life. These are things that aren't in the DSM. So when we talk about using psychedelics in therapy, 
if if we're talking about me and my clients, then really we're talking about like other kinds of issues. And psychedelics, again, could potentially help with that as well. It could help with people. So research has found that it, it increases sociability, meaning it increases people's motivation to socialize. It increases people's compassion for themselves and for other people. It makes them nicer to other people. It makes them generally, generally less fearful and less negative about things. And so you could imagine that if you were suffering in life, that you could imagine this could help with, with your treatment. Now, having said all that, there's a lot of negative side effects from using psychedelics. People can get depressed. They can have a lack of energy. Their brain stops functioning as well as it did before. Memory problems. Um, And in the short term, you can have really bad trips. And if if you're familiar, you know how horrible that can be. Bad trips are no joke. They can really, really be horrible. But research is is finding that bad trips can be managed with using talk-down techniques that were developed long ago, uh, for the most part. Um, And also, although there are a lot of bad effects, we just have to look at some stats here. For example, 9% of the population in the United States have used LSD at least once in their lives. And that's just LSD, so it doesn't count other psychedelics. So probably 10 to 20% of the population have used psychedelics at some point in their life. Another another, uh, study found that almost a million doses of ecstasy or MDMA or Molly are used every weekend in the UK. A million doses every weekend almost. And yet, there are less than five deaths per year. So just think about that. Every weekend, you have, you know, a million doses spread out over, I don't know, half a million people. So let's say, let's say, you know, 200,000 to 500,000 people in the UK are using some sort of psychedelics on the weekend. And yet, there's only five deaths per year. And we just have to compare that to alcohol, for example, right? Uh, how, how many drinks are happening every weekend in the UK and in other societies and how many deaths? So although, uh, so if we're going to be freaked out by psychedelics, we really should be freaked out about alcohol. All right. So what's the conclusion for patron Adam about psychedelics and therapy? Again, I don't know much about this topic, so, you know, don't really depend on me for such things. But according to what I can tell, much more research is needed uh, for us to really know what's happening. All this could be hogwash. Like, it, it could not help with anything. It's, it's possible that it doesn't help with anything. Also, there is tremendous overhype on the Internet right now by some people. For example, this one website was just talking about how psychedelics are going to save the world. They say, PTSD sufferers have reported being cured. People who suffer from addiction have turned their lives around completely, and people dealing with incredible anxiety and depression have reported feeling an immense sense of ease and acceptance, unquote. So although this is true, people have reported that, the website didn't go into, but it could all be placebo, you know, who knows what these people, uh, who knows if these people would have had things turn around for them without these substances. There's just no caveats there, and so, because that's one thing that, unless you know, it's like there are a certain amount of people who without any treatment, they will get better, whether it's addiction, PTSD or otherwise, uh, depression. 
there's just a, a regression to the mean is what they call it. It's just some people just get better, you know, without anything. And if you happen to take psychedelics just before you happen to get better, then you're going to be like, ooh, psychedelics helped me, when in fact they might not have actually been a part of that at all. So there needs to be some caveat there in terms of how statistics work and research works. But, you know, this, these, this quote isn't wrong. It's just like there's just a lot of hype around it right now, and the fact is we just don't know. I, the reason why I'm skeptical, or at least um, I'm just wanting to be cautious about this hype is that I remember the exact same thing being said about various different drugs in history. If it's one thing that growing old helps you realize is that history repeats itself. And there were, when Prozac came out, for example, for a good five years, it was the miracle drug. It solved everyone's problems. It made everyone happy. It, they called it the happy drug. It was just like, yeah, you take Prozac and it makes you happy. And that is just not even empirically true. <laughs> like for a very small minority of people, um, Prozac is better than placebo. But it, it's a far cry from saying that Prozac makes you happy, particularly if you're not depressed, right? <laughs> they were just saying like, oh, you want to be happy, take Prozac. And certainly for some, yeah, absolutely. But it, as we, you know, there, there was a time when and other drugs, lithium, other kinds of drugs, there was this time when it was like, oh, we found a drug that will solve all psychiatric problems. And it's the, there's some people that are talking about psychedelics in that way. And, you know, great, let's research it, but, you know, let's just hold off on the grandiose statements. Now, it might be true that it solves all of our problems. Who knows? But let's look into it. But here's my prediction, that in, I don't know, given our culture's weirdness, it'll probably take 30 to 50 years for us to normalize this substance um uh you know with our progression and our progressive attitudes about marijuana maybe it'll be a similar uh, rapidity when it comes to psychedelics but anyway so i suspect in 25 30 years that psychedelics will be normalized and it will be researched and it will become just one of the many different psychoactive drugs available to psychiatry um you know we have Prozac, we have other antidepressants, we have um, benzodiazepines, we have Ambien and you know other drugs in, in that class. We have antipsychotics, blah, blah, blah. So we have a lot of different uh, agents available to psychiatrists to help people, and I suspect that psychedelics will just be another one of those things that they prescribe. And it'll have a, a, a small uh, but important minority of people that it really helps to turn them around. And for a lot of other people, it's just not going to do anything um, similar to a lot of other substances. And that um, the substance itself won't cure people. Like I just taking a, a, a psychedelic, I suspect does not do anything to PTSD. You need to have a, some sort of treatment regimen, some sort of therapist, some sort of treatment. Um, now, I don't know but that's what I suspect. Like, for example, the reason why my benzodiazepine experience helped me with my PTSD for medical stuff was because for, I don't know, five years prior to that, I was routinely trying to work on my cognitions around medical stuff. And I was routinely trying to expose myself to medical 
images on TV or thoughts in my mind to try to prepare me and habituate me to medical procedures. And so by the time that thing happened, um, in my mind, I, I, could, I could sort of synthesize all those different things that I had, all that previous work that I had done. So, you know, who knows? But anyway. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email comes from an anonymous patron. They write, I have had neck pain for years, but over the past few, it's gotten worse and worse. I have two vertebrae that are close to self-fusion. I feel like every day is a trauma. Just getting up hurts. And even on better days, there is always the fear of it becoming worse. I live in an extremely I live an extremely I lived, sorry. I lived an extremely active life up to the age of about 40 when I was forced to stop doing many of my activities out of fear of making it worse. It's hard to get excited about any given day. End of email. Yeah, this is the worst. I'm not a physician. I don't work in pain management, but what I can say is that it's the worst. Pain is the worst. Um, there's not a lot of things more worse than just ongoing pain. I have had mild experiences with it in my life. Um, I currently don't have any ongoing pain, which is good. But I I have an old football injury in my back, and I have um, I've I've broken bones or a broken bone in my back or something, and it makes it so that my my whole spine wants to move forward, if that makes any sense. And if you look at my x-ray, I have my last few vertebrae are like all fucked up. And it pinches on my nerves. And so I get this like, when it's active, I get this massive pain in, in my whole lower back and my left leg. And yeah, it when it was flaring up for about a year there, um, a couple years ago ish, it was um, demoralizing. It's awful, and it wasn't even that bad. And so, I can't imagine being worse. I've had clients who have suffered from chronic intense pain, and I can say, having lived with them on that journey, that uh, I I have a good idea of how demoralizing and depressing and awful it is. You know, it's one thing to be like, oh, this thing sucks in my life. Like, I don't know. I don't have a lot of money. But at the very least, it's like you're not in a constant state of pain. Like, you can do things to forget the fact that you don't have any money. Like, you could go on a hike or you could have a laugh or you could listen to comedy or this kind of thing. But when you're in pain, it's every microsecond of your life is filled with the knowledge that you are hurting and it hurts and it's hard. It's the worst in people become suicidal because of this, which, you know, I think makes some sense. Now, what I will say is that there are people who emerge on the other side of that depressing process, having still experiencing the pain, but they have a new lease on life, so to speak, and have figured out something that most of us will never figure out because of what they've figured out, which I'll, I'll get into in a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, 
the pain makes it hard to enjoy anything. It makes it hard to enjoy work or friendship or TV or sex or anything. It's just, it's depressing. I mean, I've experienced acute things like this. Like I pulled my hamstring about a year ago and not only was I in a lot of pain, but I also really couldn't move much. And it was hard for me to even sleep because it would hurt so much. Incidentally, I pulled it from stretching too hard, which that had never happened before. But, and then it got a little sore. And so I proceeded to stretch it even more because I was like, man, something's real tight back there. So I kept stretching it. And uh, then the pain, you know, settled in. But there's a depression that kind of kicks in because you, you can't do anything. You're just like, okay, I want to get up and get myself a sandwich, but it'll, it'll hurt so much. I, I don't want to. It's like you, you can't even just get up and just do normal things. It's very, very depressing. Um, statistics show that between 10 to 20% of adults suffer from pain in their lives of some sort. I'm guessing you know, probably, I don't know, five to 10% of people suffer from what we might consider to be pretty awful pain on a daily basis. There's a lot of uh, treatments for it, which I'll just rattle off. Um, Of course, there are medications, over-the-counter medications, aspirin. There's prescription medications, muscle relaxants, benzos, antidepressants, uh, painkillers like opioids, codeine, fentanyl, oxycodone, that kind of thing. You can have steroid steroid injections. You can get an epidural. Um, obviously, you can be prescribed marijuana. Um, you can also self-medicate through alcohol or, uh, or opioids. But there's also a lot of psychological treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, relaxation, relationship therapy, exercise can be used, uh, Buddhism can be used, physical therapy, occupational therapy, diet can be changed. Uh, there's a thing that I found in the research literature called Comprehensive Telepa- Telephonic Pain Self-Management Coaching Program. Comprehensive Telephonic Pain Self-Management Coaching Program. So there are coaches that s- specialize in pain management. Hypnosis, religion can help with some people, chiropractic, ac- acupuncture, massage, magnets, crystals, and of course, invasive surgery as well. So... What I'll say to the treatments is that there's often this barrier that involves the amount of activity required in the patient. You know, normally when a patient goes to get treatment, uh, they're prescribed a medication, they are, you know, they have to sit through surgery or something. Maybe there's a little bit of physical therapy, but, you know, after a few months, they're on their way. With pain management, in my experience, it requires a lot of education and action on behalf of the patient. If, if you suffer from ongoing pain, you know this. You know that you can't just be like, doctor, I'm in a bunch of pain, and they're going to fix it. They're, they're not. They, your physician probably has like 5% of the overall thing that you're going to have to do. And so pain management requires... Really, 99% of the work has to be done by the patient themselves in in terms of treatment. And our medical system is not really set up for that. We we don't have a system that's really set up for that. We also don't have a culture that promotes that idea. And a lot of people are just sitting around at home in pain, following their physician's orders, 
without really knowing that there are a lot of other things they could be doing that um, aren't being suggested to them or aren't being suggested very strongly, this kind of thing. It's also very expensive to do pain management because if you think about all the meds, all the coaching, all the psychotherapy, all the visits, all the physical therapy, it's very expensive. And, you know, when things cost money, it capitalistic organizations tend to avoid such endeavors. <laughs> you know, it's much more profitable to prescribe a med and have people go away and charge lots of money for it. Um, that's not an indictment on physicians. It's an indictment on the way that we look at these sorts of systems as a society and as a government. But in summary, what I'll say is, is there are th- three different things here. Uh, one is, is pain management. That's one key to uh, reducing the pain or being able to deal with the pain. Um, again, you have to take action. You have to take ownership of your whole of your whole program. You got to research things yourself. You got to ask questions. You got to take action. Um, the The second thing to pain management is grieving the loss. When you enter a world of pain, you are losing the world where you weren't in pain. And that is a loss. That is a grief process. It's depressing. In the same way that if your spouse died, there was a there was a point when you had your spouse and then a point when your spouse died. And it's two different worlds. And when you enter the world of pain, you're in another world and you lost your your original world without pain in it. It was a better world back then. Just like it was a better world when you had your spouse or a better world when your pet was still alive. And there's just there's there's there might be a minor silver lining to that, but it's a lot of pain. It's a lot of sadness. It's a lot of grief. And the grief process involves a lot of thinking, a lot of talking, a lot of getting support. And through that process, we typically find meaning and and post traumatic growth and acceptance. It's not something you can race toward the finish line on, but through that grief process, people find wisdom. They find acceptance. And that's one of the keys of the people who have found uh, happiness and a good life, even though they're in pain all the time, is that they've grieved that process. They've thought about it. They've had the feelings. They've gotten support. They've went through all those things. And Because, you know, when you first enter the world of pain, you will um, you're, you don't want to accept it, right? You're just like, no, 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 no. This is not my life. I, I'm, not, I'm not a pain person. I don't have to be in pain. That, this isn't supposed to be happening to me. This is unfair, and I, I don't accept this. And that, that conflict with reality can prolong one's or uh, amplify one's distress, and maybe even amplify one's pain because it can be a psychological thing. And so um, grieving it and going through those those steps. What I'm not saying is like, well, hey, just accept it. That's not what I'm saying. If you understand me and you understand grief, you understand that's not what I'm saying. Acceptance is something that eventually happens. It's, a, it's not like acceptance like I give up or I accept my fate. No, it's like acceptance in the grief sense is, is a very wisdom-oriented process. It's very complicated, but um, it's sort of like if I were to put it on something personal – I have accepted the fact that we're all going to die. 
I'm not happy about it. I'm not like, yay, death, you know. <laughs> I'm not like, I haven't given up. I'm like, oh, you know, fuck it. I guess we're all going to die. Through my grief around losing the notion of innocence that no one will die, I have come to a place where I have whatever the 48-year-old version of wisdom regarding grief looks like and and greet and dying looks like uh so that's what acceptance should mean sometimes people mean it as like just get over it but anyway so you got pain management which is the whole all-encompassing thing where you're doing all the different things you know you're doing meds you're doing therapy you're doing support groups you're doing mindfulness you're you know you're doing physical therapy, exercise, diet, you know, you're doing all the stuff that works for you, that you've found works for you. The second thing is grieving the loss. The third thing is relationships. This is key and something that often is not talked about. It's talked about sometimes with regards to pain management, but not usually. Usually it's all about, um, you know, opioids, right? Oxycontin and that kind of thing. Which, by the way, from what we understand about pain meds, particularly those stronger ones, people build a tolerance for them and then they no longer work so we're just like it, nothing really sheds light on the fact that we're still kind of in the dark ages when it comes to science and medicine when we can't help people in pain i mean when i was going through my pain with with my back i i realized that wow our medical profession really just is powerless when it comes to pain i mean these the, the things that people were telling me to do, you know, is mainly my physical therapist was helping me with like core exercises and maybe trying to, you know, help with the discs, kind of pushing it back in through these different stretches and stuff. But it wasn't working very well. And looking back, I, I don't know if any of those things worked. So, uh, you know, the physician's saying, well, we can give you some meds, but probably won't work and there's side effects to it. And also we could do surgery, but things could get a lot worse. And I know people who had back pain, they had back surgery and it didn't get any better or it got worse or they became paralyzed from the legs down. So it, there's, we're just like powerless. And, and I, I, I always say this is that in a hundred years and a thousand years, people are going to look back on our time right now and they're going to associate us with like, you know, medicine in the 1700s. They're just going to lump us all in that because they're going to be so further down the road in terms of science. And it's, we just have to accept that. And I think that in our culture, we often promote this idea of like, we figured it all out. And it's like, nothing disabuses you of that notion as much as the realization that we have no idea how to deal with pain or we have very limited resources. Now, having said all that, medicine knows a lot of things and can do a lot of things and can solve people's medical issues. One could say the physical therapist solved my pain because I'm not in pain right now. Who knows? But anyway, so you got pain management, you got grief, and you got relationships. Relationships are very important to focus on. When we go through grief, when we're suffering, when we're going through something horrible, we have this tendency in our culture to look for other things to do like mindfulness or Buddhism or medication or cognitive behavioral therapy. And what we don't emphasize enough is relationships. When someone is there with you, when you feel cared for, when you feel 
with someone, when you feel like people really get you, a lot of good things happen for you. One, certain neurochemical things happen so that you actually feel less pain. So there's just this direct, you know, causation between good relationships equals less pain for many people. But also the grief process and the meaning of it all changes too. This is what I was talking about earlier is like, it's normal to become suicidal under such circumstances. And the cure for that is relationships. The cure for that is the whole kit and caboodle, but a big part of that is relationships. If you're, you know, there are people suffering from very horrible things, terminal illness, pain, uh, everyone died in their family, you know, just, just awful, awful things. And the, what I've seen is the big difference between being able to cope and being relaxed and going through it in a, I don't know, wise, calm way. And those who don't are the people who have relationships, strong relationships with people and people who don't. And this is bigger than just like people being around. Like, and I've seen this when people um, do this sort of thing. It's like someone's in the hospital, someone's in hospice and the whole family shows up and they're there and they're, you know, they're around the, the bed and they're, you know, they're trying their best to help. Well, that's step one. There are probably another 20 steps that the family has to go through in order to really optimize the relationship for the situation. You know, just being there is obviously a big part of it. But another part of it is a, a significant bigger part of it is how everyone interacts. So it's not just the visitors, but it's also the patient. The patient has to say, okay, I'm going to lean into this a little bit. I'm going to open up. I'm going to talk about things. I'm going to ask for support. I'm going to thank people. I'm going to, I'm going to speak up when I, when I don't like something. And the family and the physicians, everyone around has to reciprocate. It's a, everyone builds this process of relationships. Now, I'm, I'm describing a situation in hospice, you know, maybe a, a more uh, regular situation of just ongoing pain is like you have arthritis and, you know, many of your joints are in pain. Well, one of the things that is necessary for uh, happiness or um, contentment is often for people is, you know, say you're in a family and you wake up in the morning, you're in a lot of pain. And you just go to your spouse and your spouse says, you know, how are you today in this very meaningful kind of open way? And you say, well, to be honest, I'm in, tremend- I'm in a tremendous amount of pain and it's putting me in a really shitty mood. And then your spouse is like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. You know, I can't imagine what that must feel like, you know, and then they give you a hug. That helps, again, not only potentially with the pain itself but also with just how you see everything. If you're in pain, let me give you a very stark example. You're alone, you have no friends, you have no family, and you're in pain all the time, and you're just sitting there at home by yourself in pain. Well, that's rough, right? Well, now imagine you're in pain, same amount of pain all the time, and you have a loving spouse that listens and is there. You have loving friends. You have loving family members. You have a support group that you go to every other day in which you talk with other pain, you know, ongoing pain people. And everyone talks about what's happening in their life. You have physicians and 
physical therapists and other kind of medical people and therapists who care and really get it and understand and are there with you. Now, that's a very different life, right? And same amount of pain, completely different approach to life and approach to the pain. So we have to focus more, I think, on grief and relationships, particularly at this point when we don't have the medical ability to solve a lot of people's pain. So we have to say, okay, medicine, we don't have the answers. Now, what, what else can we be doing? And so that's what I'll say about that. Let me know what you think about that, patrons out there, because I am curious about your experience. Let me know. All right, this next email was from Angela in Virginia. They were writing about my video on Bowen. I have a video on YouTube in which I did a very brief stint into doing graphical videos on YouTube, and I did one on Bowen. It took me several weeks to complete, and at the end of that, I was like, I'm never doing that again. It took too much time, (laughs) Um, but I get some responses to it, but Angela writes, uh... You said in this video, quote, I like pathology as a relational issue, unquote. I like pathology as a relational issue. Angela asks, what does that mean? What does pathology as a relational issue mean, please? And why do you like that approach? All right. Well, this would require me to talk for a long time. If you're wanting more information about uh, systems thinking, you can go to the website and go to the family therapy tab and there's a lot of stuff there i imagine theories tab maybe as well so the way that i can briefly summarize this is that there are problems people come to therapy with problems right and there are different ways of looking at those problems and sometimes it's helpful to look at them as an individual problem and sometimes it's more helpful to look at them as a relational issue so When someone comes to therapy and they have what we might consider to be biological bipolar or biological schizophrenia or something, um, then we say, okay, there's not a lot of relational aspects to this. Most of it is biological and needs to be dealt with in that way through medication, through things that support the use of that medication, blah, blah, blah. Now, bipolar and schizophrenia have been found absolutely to have some relational aspects, like if if their relationships are going well, they tend to have lesser symptoms. Bad things in their relational environment can exacerbate certain symptoms, can cause a spike in something happening. But most agree conceptually that bipolar is is something that emerges biologically within someone's brain, this kind of thing. Um, to make it even more stark, uh, like stroke or brain injury or something, it would be something that is individual and not relational. Of course, there are relational and systemic aspects to it, but conceptually speaking, it can be seen that way. However, most of the things that people come into therapy for, in my experience, have at least a significant, have at least an important element of relationship in the conceptualization, if not entirely. For example, let's just take depression. Someone comes in and they're like, I'm depressed. And you're like, okay, you know, tell me your symptoms. They're like, well, I'm sad all the time. I don't have any energy. 
uh, I'm eating a lot, I'm sleeping a lot, uh, I, you know, I feel like I don't have anything to look forward to in life. And uh, a typical way to look at that is, oh, it's an individual thing, give them meds, send them home. But when I have come across people like this, and I actually ask them about their lives, now certainly there are biological depressed people, similar to biologically depressed or you know bipolar people, but for many people, when you look into it, you're like, uh, well, tell me more about your life. Well, I was sexually abused as a kid. I don't have any friends. My husband is abusive. I don't like my job. My boss sucks. Uh, I'm just living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, I'm overweight. I don't feel good about myself. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, in that situation, I would say, hmm, well, you probably have reasons to be depressed <laughs> because who wouldn't be depressed with all those negative things happening in your life? So let's look at what's happening in your life. Um, let's look at the relationship between you and your husband. Let's just look at that just one factor in that person's system. If that relationship were to become not abusive and even supportive, would the depression go away partially? Most people would say, well, yeah, likely. Uh, what if this person were to grieve what they went through as a child with the sexual abuse, um, barring any trauma, PTSD that they might have? Might they actually feel a little better? Uh, what if this person had support around getting healthy and was able to allocate more time to that and wasn't having to spend all day at home with the kids and then working 40 hours a week. You know, what if all those things could happen? Would they feel better about themselves? Often people do feel better about themselves when that happens. So we, that's what I'm saying by a relational issue. Instead of looking at that person as having something wrong with them that needs to be treated either through medication or there's something wrong with their thinking. So that's a, you know, a, a CBT conceptualization of this person is they don't have proper thinking. They have to change their thinking. They have to be more positive. Um, they have to accept their life more, that kind of thing. They have to do different things, you know. And although those can be wonderful things to do, in the scenario I laid out, which is, I have to say, very common presenting scenario for people in therapy, we can say, oh, th this person is a part of a larger system and this system needs to be treated. Now, uh, I might bring everybody in. I might bring the husband in. I might bring, I'd love to bring the boss in. <laughs> you know, I've done stuff like that before. But it, practically speaking, I might only be working with the individual and I can still treat the system. So that's what I mean by something emerging out of a system. We have an easier time, or at least I hope so. Oh, God, I don't know. But there, there's a lot of different power. So I come from family therapy, which prides itself on thinking systemically. My program at Antioch University, the Couple and Family Therapy Program, the central focus is on systems theory and systems thinking. And we are in the minority. Systems thinkers are in the minority in my field and becoming more and more so. And to some extent, um, let me give another example of systems thinking in society that might, you might be able to relate to. So let's say you have a video that crops up on YouTube of a uh, police officer who 
seems to be uh, being really rough with an African-American male. And the African-American male teenage boy driving his car just had a blinker out and gave a little bit of lip to the police officer. And the police officer, you know, grabs the kid, slams him on the ground, maybe, maybe even shoots him. We've seen videos like this before. Well, a linear, non-systemic way of looking at this is that police officer is a psychopath. There's something wrong. That, that the, the police officer is racist. That police officer is a bad apple. Okay. Certainly, you know, it's one conceptualization. It's, it's not a wrong conceptualization. There's no way to prove or disprove that story. But there's another story, which I find to be much more relevant and helpful, which is that we have a system of racism, not only in our society, but also in our police force. And until we change that system, we're going to continue not only seeing this behavior in that one individual police officer, but in lots of police officers, and not just with African-American folks, but with lots of people. So until we address the system, which is not only the police force system, but also our society and also our world society, you know. So you can see why it's so much easier to say, well, that's a bad apple or something wrong with that guy. It's so much more discreet, more understandable. We know who to blame. We know what to tweet about. It's so much harder to say, what we're watching in this video is a symptom of a larger systemic ill that is present. And until we address that system, we're going to continue seeing this. We could fire, we could, sure, we could fire that one police officer, but it's going to happen again unless we change the system. And people might ask, well, how do you change that system? Well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I, I suspect that change in that system involves a lot of different things. Um, let me just give you one thing that I imagine would work. When I entered the field of psychotherapy, I entered from society. I was just a regular person in society. There wasn't anything special about me. And I had internalized all the racist propaganda that was given to me by society and advertisements and TV shows and news programs. And I entered graduate school at the age of 24, uh, wanting to be a therapist. Um, you know, I'm a person of color. I'm Asian. So I, I experienced racism myself for sure. But by no means did that, did that make me an expert on racism or did the, in no, no way did that make me like enlightened to racism the way that I needed to be, to be an effective therapist and educator and supervisor. And in graduate school, I went through a transformation with regards to multiculturalism and understanding and sensitivity and empathy, really, for other people and their, their experience. Uh, for women, for people with disabilities, for every oppressed class, I very slowly, through really listening to them, it changed my soul. That will work on police officers. If you, because many police officers are already there. Many, some of the most woke people on the planet are police officers. So how did they get there? Well, they didn't, they didn't emerge from the womb like that. Their experiences led them to that. A white police officer marries an African-American uh, person. 
Uh, and through that experience, they hear a lot of stories and they, they care about their spouse and their spouse's family and friends. And that police officer says, whoa, I get it now. And that's going to change my approach in how I look at people, not only in what I do, but the way I see people. When I walk up to the car after pulling someone over for a speeding ticket or a braking light, brake light that's, that's out, and I see that there's a young black man, I'm going to say to myself, watch it, because if you just act naturally, you're going to act out a certain racist attitude that's not going to go well for anybody here. So I might have to take some extra care on not only my, my behavior with this person, but also my attitude with this person. I have to sort of check my bias at the door. And this isn't just African-Americans. It's Hispanic. It's immigrants in general, whether you're an immigrant from Sweden or whatever. It's, there's a certain disdain for immigrants. There's gender issues. There's accent issues. Uh, you know, If you have a southern accent in Seattle, like, that probably doesn't go well for you. If you, are a, if you have bumper stickers that espouse particular political beliefs or religious beliefs, if you are ugly, if you're not, if your hair looks funny, if the music you're listening, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways in which people have ideas. And all of those ideas emerged out of a system. People aren't born with racist attitudes. People aren't born with attitudes against goth people. People aren't born with bad attitudes towards people with accents. We, we develop that through our system, through media, through comedy, through news, through uh, the way teachers treat particular kids differently. It all works. It's a system. And if we're going to change racism among police officers, we have to change the system. And so when a client comes to me and starts talking about how they're sad or anxious or they don't like their relationships or they're, um, they have borderline personality disorder. I don't look at that person and say like, oh, like let's take borderline, for example. Someone comes to me and they're like, I have borderline. I specialize in personality disorder, so I get a fair amount of people just saying stuff like that. I have narcissistic personality disorder. Well, I don't look at that person and go like, okay, so now we have to somehow tinker with your brain to make you not narcissistic or we have to tinker with your brain to make you somehow not by or a borderline. That's you know that's part of it, honestly, to be truthful. But that is not most of it. What most of it is is okay. Well, let's look at all your relationships, including your relationship with me. By the way, once you enter therapy with me, I am now part of your system, and frankly, you're part of mine. So, how are we going to look at that whole thing and our relationship? exists in a society, which is a whole other system, and how are we going to look at that? So it's, it's everything. I love the very rare marriage between psychodynamic, psychoanalytic theory with systems theory. I actually recently reorganized my entire bookshelf, and I have a very small, lovely section of books that have to do with systems and psychodynamic theory. And because I predict some people will email me and saying, what are those books? Let me just go grab those books and just tell you the titles. All right, we have The Embedded Self by Mary Joan Gerson. The Embedded Self, which is an integration of psychodynamic and systems theory 
My next book here, The Use of Psychoanalytic Concepts in Therapy with Families by Hilary Davies. And the last book here, The Self in the System by Nichols. Uh, all these books are okay. I, I've enjoyed them to some extent. <laughs> um, and it was years ago when I was really falling in love with this notion that I decided to write my own book on psych. And I even came up with my own language, psychodynamic systems. <laughs> Very uh, obvious. But I wanted to develop my own theory. And I did a fair amount of research and writing, but as with my book on grief, I uh, ran into barriers and got distracted and did a lot of other things, and it's now on the back burner. But anyway, so so in my as I say that, the reason why I'm saying all this is that I'm not saying I deny psychodynamic concepts, which are generally individualistic concepts. Um, I don't deny cognitive behavioral therapy. I think it's wonderful. But what I, what I tell my students, my family therapy students, is it's so much easier to understand cognitive behavioral theory because it's in our culture. People generally talk like this. Look on the bright side. That's a cognitive therapy technique. You know, get outside and breathe the fresh air. That's a behavioral therapy technique. So it's in our culture. CBT is in our culture. It's very easy to understand. You teach, it's, you, I can teach CBT in like half an hour. It's very quick. <laughs> Systems theory, on the other hand, is not in our culture, probably because it's more complex. And to, to really understand systems theory, I don't, I, it took me 10 years, 15 years to really get it. And that was from <clears throat> dedicated time reading and thinking about it. And this is, I, I didn't really get it until years after I had already been teaching it. I was teaching a class called Systems Perspective in Family Therapy for years before I really got what systems really was. That's how hard it is to understand. You know, people on, in my program, they will say, I have a really hard time with systems and I'm about to graduate. You know, what's wrong with me? And I say, there's nothing wrong with you. There's no way to understand it from a master's or even a doctorate degree. There's no way to get systems theory. It's too complex. You have to, in, in my way of thinking, you have to build complete new neural pathways in your brain to perceive the world and understand it in order to really get systems theory. It just takes a long time. There's too many things to consider. You have to consider literally like 50 different things all at the same time, happening at the same time, all affecting each other, all influencing each other at the same time, mutual causality, everything's just boom. Whereas linear causality is so much more easier to understand. Bad cop, get rid of them. It's just, that's so easy. Bad cop, get rid of them. What is that? Um, th five words? That's uh, all you got to do. It's, your brain only has to hold on to five words. Systems theory, uh, and I only, so I only talked about like a little bit of that system of police officers and and racism you know the, the other part that we have to think about in that system is the quote-unquote liberal progressive response to police officers you know black lives matter and that's a whole other area of the system well police officers perceive that black lives matter movement in a particular way often because of the way the system operates and that can affect them that can make them a little bit more jaded or or something or a little bit more loyal to be to their fellow conservative compadres. 
And so that's a whole other factor in that behavior as that police officer walks up to that car with the African-American teenager and is rough with him. There's, there's everything is involved and there's, and there's so complex and there's no way to know there's no, there's no way to know what things are influencing, how much of a factor there's just so many things. And that's why psychodynamic systems work so well for me because it involves all that. And if I could talk to that police officer and really get down and dirty with his psychodynamics and his uh, traumas and his belief systems and his um, relationship with himself and all that kind of stuff, I would have a much better picture of why that happened. His internal workings and and the the Venn diagram, or not the Venn diagram, but his internal workings as it exists within a larger system. That's the best way to understand the world, in my opinion. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous person. They write, I don't really feel like I suffer from agoraphobia, but I'm interested to learn about it. For about six years now, I've been entirely cut off from all relationships with past friends for various reasons, and I literally have no friends or contact with friends anymore. The only person in my life is my girlfriend, who is more than just a girlfriend, as as we've been together for 14 years. We both have attachment problems and associated personality disorders, so though I have her in my life daily, it often feels like there is a big disconnect in our relationship, so sometimes it adds to the isolation I feel. I am trying to run my own business from home, so I spend a lot of days at home alone. I don't really feel like I have agoraphobia, but I'm interested to learn more about it. I do wonder if it's something that may be slowly creeping in as I'm cut off from others for so long. End of email. Yeah, it it doesn't sound like agoraphobia to me, uh, since you don't experience tremendous distress upon thinking about leaving the house. Sounds more like a life choice. It doesn't sound like you're living your optimal life. It sounds like you want to have friends. Sounds like you want to have more connection with your partner. So, um, you know, there's all that. Um, but yeah, it doesn't sound like agoraphobia. Just because it could look like agoraphobia doesn't mean that it is. Um, having said that, over time, you might begin to develop some minor anxiety when you think about leaving the house or when you do leave the house because you're just not really used to it. But that's not really – doesn't rise to the level of agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is pretty awful. And uh, when people talk about it, it's, um, it's quite distinct. There's a lot of variation in agoraphobia. Um, people can have fear of just being in a car or being on a bus or a, being on an escalator or being on a bridge. You know, all these things are associated with things outside the house. Being in a mall can – terrify people or just being like in a vast parking lot can scare people obviously being in crowds like a you know you're in a crowded space that can scare people older people sometimes have a fear of falling when they're outside the house and not being able to get help children sometimes have agoraphobia that manifests as a fear of getting lost like these kids will say um you know, the parents will be like, okay, it's, it's time to, to walk to school or something. And the kid will be like, well, oh no, you know, if, if, if I leave the house, uh, I'm going to get lost. What happens if I got lost? How am I going to find my way to school or home? And as a parent, you're like, well, you're not going to get lost because I'm going to be right there with you. 
And even if we did, we just look at our phones and the kid will be like, well, what if the phone, you know, it's, it's this irrational fear that kind of builds up. Sometimes you'll hear people with agoraphobia worrying that they're going to vomit in, uh, I had a client once who was terrified of going to the movies and sitting in the middle of the uh, theater in the middle of an, you know, between the aisles because he was afraid he was going to throw up in the middle or he's going to have to throw up in the middle of a movie and he wouldn't be able to get to the aisle and up to the bathroom in time and he was going to vomit all over everybody. And this prevented him from going to to the movies and to a lot of different places, even though he had never vomited in public before. He had never um, – there was no risk of him vomiting. Uh, but, you know, that's the nature of disorders. Sometimes people will have a fear of leaving the house for fear of not being able to find a bathroom to, to go to the bathroom. Now, again, when you hear about this, you're like, well, okay, one, the chance of that happening is pretty slim. Two, if it did happen, you could probably find a bathroom somewhere. You know, within 10 minutes, you'll find someplace. And three, even worst case scenario, absolute worst case scenario, you can't find a bathroom. Well, you know, just if it's number one, just find a place behind uh, a dumpster and, you know, relieve yourself. If, you know, if it comes to that, it's not the worst case scenario. You get a, a citation from a police officer. It's not likely to happen, and it's not, it's not anything to, like, never leave the house over, right? Well, again, this is the nature of disorders. It's not something you can cognitively just wish away. You can't just be like, you know, even for, for many people with agoraphobia, they'll be like, yeah, I know this is unreasonable. I realize that my fear of this is not rational, but you don't understand how my brain works. It focuses obsessively on something. And it just won't let go of it, and I'm, uh, I'm just, it just, it's like a loop in my brain, and I'm in a constant state of fear. So it's important to understand with any anxiety disorder, agoraphobia included, that it it defies rational thought. Now, some people are lost to the logic of their anxiety, but many are not. Many absolutely know uh, that what they're fearing is not rational, and they don't really have a need, or there's not really a a reason for them to be worrying about such thing. And other people will have a fear of having a panic attack or fainting in public. And they're worried that no one's going to be there to help them. Now, this is when we start getting into some embarrassment type of anxiety. There's a there's an element of public humiliation that can be quite scary to people. So, this disorder overlaps a lot with a number of other disorders, namely generalized anxiety, social phobia, panic, specific phobias, PTSD, acute stress disorder, uh, depression, and separation anxiety. Uh, agoraphobia can look a lot like those things, and it can actually be accompanied by those things. And sometimes you'll get someone that it's like, well, it kind of looks like agoraphobia, but it also just kind of looks like panic disorder. It also kind of looks like just a really specific, specific phobia. Uh, so it all just, all just depends on how you want to look at it. The prevalence seems to be around 2% of teens and adults have it at any given time, uh, which is, you know, one of the common percentage ranges. I think schizophrenia is around there as well, 1% or 2%. About two-thirds are female. So if you're a woman, you are two times more likely to meet the criteria for agoraphobia. Uh, 
Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why this is. Maybe it's genetic. But it seems possible that in a society in which men are taught that they have to kind of push past their fears and that they have to leave the house a lot, that that might sort of help men in some ways overcome their agoraphobia or transform the issue into something else. A lot of men learn that they can cope with things with substances. Men are more likely to self-medicate, and maybe that's what reduces the prevalence among males. It's hard to know. Um, And it's also uh, seemingly in every society, agoraphobia seems to have similar rates across the world. So it seems to be something that's really quite human about us. Also, about half of people with agoraphobia also have panic attacks. Um, so it's, it's really associated with panic, and panic can be a component of agoraphobia. But not everyone. Half of people with agoraphobia don't experience panic attacks. As far as treatment goes... Without treatment, uh, only about 10% of people will experience complete remission. So 90% of people with agoraphobia need treatment. So that's important to know that you can't just like wait for it to go away. It's very unlikely to do that. What are the causes? Well, as with a lot of things in the DSM, it's a combination between biology and experience and uh, seemingly in that twin studies and other kind of genetic studies seem to indicate that anxiety in general runs in families, as does lots of disorders. And also experience, namely trauma and attachment disruptions. This makes total sense. If you're traumatized and your home is your safe space, then you're going to feel good at home. And when you think about leaving the home, it's going to make you feel afraid. And it's like, well... Better off staying home. Um, so here's my conceptualization of, a, of agoraphobia. It's, it's basically kind of like a trauma reaction. I've, I've come to realize that all anxiety disorders are basically a form of PTSD, in my opinion. Um, so basically you need three things to happen in order to have agoraphobia in my model of understanding. Number one is you need to have a biological disposition toward anxiety. You have to be, uh, you know, born into a family. You have to have the genetics that lead you to being vulnerable to developing anxiety. That alone won't likely make you develop agoraphobia. You just have to have the, the general disposition. Two, you need to have an attachment disruption of some kind. It doesn't have to be severe, but the more severe it is, the more likely you are to develop any disorder, let alone agoraphobia. Attachment disruptions like abuse, neglect, divorce, death, illness of yourself, illness of your family, um, going to the hospital a bunch of times as a kid, um, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so attachment insecurity is developed Uh, early in life. Essentially, you learn that the world is kind of scary and that you can't really depend on the world to be a safe place. So that's something you learn very early in life. The third thing is that something bad happens to you in the outside world. Um, Like you have a panic attack while you're at the mall or you lose your keys and you're in the parking lot and you can't find your car or you get lost in a dark 
part of town and you don't know how to get home or you can't find a bathroom and you feel really embarrassed, things like that. Or you're mugged. You're, you're literally assaulted or raped by someone while you're walking around town. These disruptions, these traumas, these things you know that create a spike in distress that are associated with the outside world, all three of those things, in my experience, are the the rest you know the ingredients for, to the recipe for agoraphobia. So biology, attachment insecurity, and something bad happening. Now, a lot of people have attachment insecurity, so that one really can be applied to most people. Biology, not so much, and something bad happening in the outside world that becomes associated with the outside world in contrast to home, you know, that's quite kind of specific too. Um, so what happens is it's like you have the biology, you have the attachment insecurity that you're walking around with, and then something bad happens in the outside world, like you're mugged or you get in a car crash or you get lost or, or you know, you're on a bridge and you feel the bridge kind of shaking and it freaks you out. And then, so your anxiety spikes. And since you have the biology to have your distress really get to you, and since you have the attachment insecurity that makes it hard to self-soothe and to self-regulate, you have an extreme spike in anxiety and distress in the outside world. And then you run home and you're, you feel safe. And then the next time you go outside, you're likely to have a reminder of something like let's just take the bridges for example so you're on a bridge and it's a particularly wobbly bridge like in a you know old part of town and you're in traffic it's bumper to bumper and you stop on the bridge and all of a sudden you feel the bridge kind of wobbling you're like whoa because i tell us to bridge phobic people out there but Bridges are wobbly, <laughs> particularly long bridges. And uh, you just don't notice it because you're speeding over it in your car. But when you stop on a bridge in bumper-to-bumper traffic or you're walking across the bridge, you feel that thing moving, you know, because it just naturally does that. They build it into the engine- engineering, by the way, just like they build the sway of tall skyscrapers into the engineering of, of skyscrapers so that they, you know, if they're rigid, then they're more likely to crack and break and fall. So anyway... So you're on a bridge, you have the biology for anxiety, you have attachment and security, you're a little prone to anxiety. You feel that bridge wobbling, you know, real, real badly. And it freaks you out. You're like, oh my God. And you feel a lot of claustrophobic and you're bumper to bumper traffic. You're like, oh my God, you know, when, when, is, when are we going to get off this bridge? You know, we, I got to move. I got to move. Should I jump out of the car? What if I freak out and everyone sees me? What if I leave my car in the middle? You know, you have this sort of mini episode on the bridge. The traffic starts, mo- starts moving. You, you're sweating, your heart's racing, your, um, you know, fight or flight's really kicked in. And, you know, you get to your destination, you go home, and you're like, whoa, that felt bad. But now I feel okay. I'm home now. My, my home is on solid ground, and I feel safe. Well, then the next day, you, you don't really think about anything, and you get back in your car, and you're, you're driving on the bridge again. This time there's no bumper-to-bumper traffic, but suddenly you're reminded of what happened yesterday, either consciously or unconsciously. Your body remembers, oh, my God, this is the scary spot. And then you start ha- – your, your body has this stress reaction, fight or flight. You start freaking out. Adrenaline starts pumping. Your amygdala is firing hot. And 
you have this distress and it feels really bad. It feels very scary. It feels very unsafe. And, you, you know, you start to cry or your hands start to shake or, you know, you just don't know what to do. Well, now uh, you might at this point go like, um, I'm not going to the store. I'm going back home. So you turn around, you go back home. Well, then the next day you're like, okay, I got to go to the store. But what if I get on that bridge? Well, okay, I'll avoid the bridge. I'll, I'll go a different direction. I'll take the long route around town. You take the long route around town, and then you notice that um, you still got to go across a little bridge. But, you know, maybe it'll be okay. It's a different bridge, smaller. As you're going across the bridge, your body again goes danger, danger, danger. And you have this massive, like, panic reaction. And you're like, oh, my God. And you go home. Well, now you're at home, and you need to go to the store. And you're like, how am I going to get to the store? And you're like, well, what if I just asked a friend? So you asked a friend, they bring the stuff to you. Now you're at home. And then say a week goes by and you're like, okay, I got to go to the store again. Well, I got to go across those bridges. And you think, well, I I guess I could go the long, I could go all the way the direction away from the bridges and go to the grocery store and, you know, in another town and avoid bridges altogether. But what if I have to go across a bridge or what if there's a little walking bridge that I have to walk across to the grocery store or what if this has nothing to do with bridges? And what if this just has to do with roads? What if roads scare me? What if being in my car scares me? What if the outside world is what is causing all this horribleness for me? That's when agoraphobia has really took root in your soul, in your personality. And then when you think about leaving the house, you all, even just thinking about leaving the house, you have a spike in distress. So, so not only are you not going to leave the house to avoid the distress you feel, but now you're not even going to think about it. And now you're going to like, you're not going to take a job or you're going to quit your job or you're going to tell everyone you're not, you're, you can't hang out with them anymore. Or you're going to say, hey, everybody, I need you to bring stuff to me. And it's interesting now that we head into a world um, in a lot of communities like mine where you can literally have everything delivered to you, uh, you know, with groceries to products to, you know, the internet to entertainment. You really could never leave your house. And so it makes it so that, one, it's harder to overcome your fears because that. But two, it can make it so that maybe you could just live with your agoraphobia and live a fully functional life and really never have to overcome your anxiety of open spaces. Um, you know, I'm guessing most people would rather get over it because, you know, there's weddings and you might want to go to a movie theater or you might just want to get outside the house and go for a hike or something. But anyway, so that's how I see how agoraphobia develops. Now that's just one type, you know, the bridge outdoors type, but there are many other kinds. Like I said, um, you know, apply that scenario I said with, you know, worrying you're going to not find a bathroom or worrying you're going to have a panic attack outside or worrying you're going to vomit or worrying you're going to get lost or worrying uh, or just a general doom. So that's the other thing about anxiety and panic that needs to be explained if you've never experienced it before is that for, for many people with anxiety, it's just a general sense of terror that doesn't really attach itself to any particular thing like bridges. It's just like being outside makes me feel terrified and my body, I am, I am 
terrified when I'm outside. And I, when I'm home, I feel much better. I don't know what I'm afraid of, but I am terrified. So there's, there's that. Now, evolutionary psychologists have hypothesized and different you know, sorts of th- people have brought other ideas. It's hard to know. I think if I was to uh, conceptualize it on that sort of meta level, I would say that as animals, we, are, uh, we evolved to um, have fear for survival, fear of tigers, fear of drowning, fear of suffocation, fear of falling off a cliff, fear of being alone, fear of being rejected by the tribe, fear of hunger, fear of thirst, fear of um, uh, snakes, you know. Uh, I don't know if we're born with fear of snakes, but but we were born with a fear mechanism that will attach itself to certain things. And when we uh, learn that certain things are to be feared, then our and we have a biology and a you know insecure attachment um, issue, then it just increases ever more. Um, that's a pretty bad conceptualization, but I hope you get meaning. All right, let's go on to the next email. All right, this next email is pretty interesting. It's from an anonymous patron here. She writes, I just listened to chapter two of your podcast on attachment theory on the advice of my therapist. Oh, so her therapist advised her to listen to chapter two of my podcast on attachment theory. That's interesting. It will definitely be life-changing for me. Oh, that's nice. My husband of 30 years, who is in the process of leaving me, is so clearly avoidant attachment. I now have a better understanding of what has been going on. My eldest daughter, nearly 24, has always been an emotionally challenging child, and I now recognize her as classic preoccupation attachment. I plan to try to get her some help with this. I'm not sure what my attachment style is, though. What I'm struggling with is what it is 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 what it was about our parenting that caused her to be this way. We have three children, she is the eldest, and I believe that we have raised them all in a loving family with a lot of attention to their needs. The others seem to have secure attachment. The only thing I can think of is that our eldest was always a very anxious child right from six weeks old. She was a poor sleeper and tried to get into our bed every night. For many years, we forced her to stay in her own bed and often left her crying in her room in the middle of the night. It wasn't until she was past five years that we decided to put a mattress on the floor beside us. Also, I probably struggled to understand and respond properly to the behaviors which were caused by her anxiety. When she was six, I did a lot of work with her step by step, and she learned how to deal with her anxiety and is now a very confident, high-achieving young adult. Nevertheless, her preoccupied attachment has ruined her relationships with her siblings, and I fear that it could affect her relationship with her boyfriend, who she is about to move out with. Could that early interaction with us have been the cause of her preoccupied attachment? I do not see us as bad or inconsistent parents that you describe in the podcast. I was always very focused on her. However, in trying to do the right thing regarding her sleeping, is it possible that we have harmed her? I would appreciate any advice. End of email. Yeah. Well, I have a chapter on parenting. I recommend. I recommended that she listen to that uh, in the deep dive. So maybe that'll help. But yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that when it comes to evaluating case by case, it's hard to know. Uh, you know, 
was it this? Was it that? Were they, did they have a disposition that really led to this or that? It, it's just hard to say. But based on your description, you know, you sound like a reliable narrator of the situation. Um, you do ask yourself you, that you don't know what your attachment style is, and there might be some wisdom and some insights once you figure that out. There's a pretty good chance that you have at least some insecurity in your attachment as a result from your upbringing that probably played a role in your parenting style with this kid. First kids are hard. Uh, you, know, you ask any family, and the first kid is kind of like the rough draft in a lot of ways. You're, you're new parents. You're younger. Maybe you don't have as much support. You're, you're, you don't have as much money often. You don't know what you're doing as well often. And so sometimes first kids can kind of get the short end of the stick in that way. Um, now there's problems with later kids as well. Cause you know, if you're the third or fifth kid, it's like, well, you're kind of like forgotten. So there's, you know, there's downsides to, I guess, being any position, but anyway. Um, so yeah, you describe someone, you say at six weeks old, she was struggling a lot. Now on one hand, it kind of looks like maybe she was born that way. She also could have been suffering from some kind of symptom, physical symptom that you didn't really know. Like she could, she could have had, you know, internal pain in her bowel or headaches or something. And you just wouldn't know because six-week-year-old people can't speak to us. And so when, for whatever reason, she seemed to be suffering in a greater way than, than other kids and particularly your other children did. And that can absolutely lead to preoccupied attachment, even if you're a totally good enough parent, in that the child is suffering with something, anxiety or pain or discomfort or something. And you're doing all the right things. You're, you're doing everything you're supposed to do. And yet the child is sitting there going, the world sucks and my parents suck. Everything sucks. No one is there for me. No one can help me. Ooh, sometimes my parents can help me. Oh, but other times they can't. The world sucks. I hate the world. I'm very upset. I feel betrayed. I feel abandoned. I feel alone. It, take it to an extreme, and I've had cases like this, where you have a kid who has a, who, who's born premature or has um, major heart problems right from birth. Well, um, so imagine you take a kid with major heart problems, and this kid needs to have like 15 surgeries by the age of five on their heart. This isn't terribly uncommon. Um, and so at the age of 18 months, at the age of, you know, three years old, at the age of four and a half, you're going into the hospital, you're terrified. You have, you have all these, you know, things poking you and you don't know why. And you're, you know, you have people telling you this is going to help you, but you don't even really understand death yet. And so you're just like, can't you just leave me alone? I don't like this. I don't, I don't want this. And as a child, you're looking to your parents and your parents are like, you know, terrified and scared and hurting for you. They have tremendous empathy for your experience, but they can't save you. And so there you are in the hospital. People are doing things to you you don't like, and your parents are letting it happening happen. Sometimes your parents are actually doing it to you themselves. And all you think about as a child in all likelihood is my parents don't really love me. The world doesn't really love me. I am not a lovable person. The world is a terrible place. I can't depend on things to go well for me. I can't trust the world. I can't trust myself. I can't trust my body. And all of that can lead to massive attachment disruptions that don't 
stand up to reason, right? You're not like you're going to go to an 18-month-year-old child and say like, well, come on, kids, stop your crying. You understand this is necessary. No, the 18-year-old doesn't get it. And those memories and those lessons get encoded into your personality. And so by the time you're 24, you sort of treat the world in the same way of the world isn't safe. I can't depend on people. People betray me at the drop of a hat. When people betray me, I'm extremely upset because I've I've internalized extreme betrayal from those who love me. It's it's a very tough world to live in. And so, uh, you know, you can imagine that. Um, now, with your situation, anonymous patron, you had a situation where you're, you didn't really know what was going on with your kid, and you were trying your best, and your kid seemed to be really suffering. Well, that's a lesser example than 15 surgeries by the age of five, but it's but it's very, very analogous and similar. And so that absolutely could be a cause for massive preoccupied attachment. Um, you know, I've talked about this before and Bob has brought it up as well, that it sometimes can be absolutely the result of terrible parenting. You just look at the parents and you're like, wow, that was terrible, you know, sexually, sexual abusive or physical abuse or something quite obvious. Other times when you look into it, you're like, oh, the parents actually were doing pretty well, but the way that the parents and the kid came together really just created a mixture of very difficult situations, like just a very introverted child and a very extroverted parent or vice versa. So the parent is very well-meaning, very loving, but just doesn't really connect well with a particular child. And the child grows up with this sense that the parents don't really love them and that they're not really there for them and they feel betrayed by them and they're traumatized by that. So there's that. The other thing is, is that you're at the beginning of your journey of understanding yourself and your own attachment. Take it from me. Um, even if you study this sort of thing all the time, as I do, and it's my job to look at others and myself, it takes an entire lifetime to basically understand maybe 10% of your personality. I am still, at the age of 48, after being in the field for 25 years-ish, I'm still discovering things about myself and going, oh my God, I've been doing this since I was five years old. <laughs> uh, how come as a professional, I, I haven't seen it until today? I make one of those revelations probably once every three months. I'll say, oh, wait a second. And I rewrite the entire history of my life. And I think all those times when that was happening, it was actually this happening. And a lot of those revelations have to do with me realizing something that I was in denial of, something that I didn't want to admit to myself, because of course I didn't want to admit it to myself. It's horrible to admit that I am flawed. I don't want to admit that. It's horrible to admit that I have hurt people. It's on accident usual, but, uh, you know, usually, but it's horrible to admit that to oneself. You know, we tend to think of maturity at the age of 18. Not true. We're still maturing at the age of 75. We're still figuring things out. And so you're at the beginning of that journey. And um, you might discover things about your own attachment injuries, your own attachment style as an adult, and your own parenting style that could have led to your oldest child developing preoccupied attachment. Now, why would that have resulted in your other kids having seemingly secure attachment? Well, the other thing I'll say is that it's possible that your kids don't have secure attachment. They might be avoidant attachment. 
which can very much look like secure attachment, by the way. Oftentimes, actually, people with avoidant attachment will be very easily confused with secure, even themselves. I've worked with lots of students who come to me to be trained as therapists, and I teach them attachment theory. And there's always a percentage of students who will at first say, I'm secure attachment because blah, 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 blah. And I'll be like, okay, you know, we'll see how you feel about that once you go further down the road. 90% of them, they go further down the road and they're like, oh, wait a second, I'm avoidant attachment. <laughs> because preoccupied attachment is very noticeable. If, so if you want more information, listen to the whole attachment deep dive, as I'm guessing most of you have as patrons. But, you know, preoccupied attachment is very noticeable to everyone, including the individual. They know they're suffering, you know. Avoidant attachment people are avoiding their suffering and have suppressed it to a point where they don't even really know it's happening. And uh, the suffering is buried underneath there. And so it takes a while for them to realize it. So it's possible your kids have avoided. Now, it's also, let's, so, so let's just go with that as one particular you know, line of reasoning. The other is that, let's say they are secure attachment. Well, your, those kids might have been born with relatively, um, you know, uh, so we say relaxed biologies <laughs> where their disposition is quite relaxed. They're quite easygoing. They didn't have any pain early in life. And you didn't have to do much to make them feel secure. There are some kids out there who don't require much to make them feel happy, to make them feel okay, to make them feel safe, to make them feel not afraid, to make them feel comfortable. And that's a lot of what attachment parenting has to do with, is helping young kids age zero to four feel comfortable. They, you know, When they're uncomfortable, are you attuned to that? And can you help them with that? Well, some kids just generally don't get very uncomfortable very often. They're just like, they get mildly uncomfortable at times. A friend of mine has a kid who's born with a skin condition in which he has, he has to itch all the time. It's all like, it's over all of his head and face and everything. And the kid wants to itch all the time. The kid is in a constant state of needing to itch, but the mother can't let him itch himself because it will make it worse. And so this kid is just in a constant state, and, and he, the kid has to have his hands and arms kind of like strapped down so that he won't itch himself. And when people pick up the kid to like, oh, there's a baby, the kid will instantly start to rub his head against the people who are holding him because he's trying to itch his head because his head is so itchy. So just imagine that, you know, you're uh, five months old or something, three months old, and you're just like, oh my God, this is so painful. And then, you know, you get a little older and you realize, wait, people are preventing me from itching my own skull, from itching my scalp, which is so painful. You'd have trouble sleeping. You'd have trouble eating. You'd have trouble, you know, just imagine what, you know, that would have on your early neuronal development regarding your working models of self and other, right? It's just awful. And so, Sometimes it's just you're just you just you just get a kid that doesn't have any of those problems. And even though you have problems in your attachment style and you have problems in your parenting, it doesn't really affect the kids that much because they just seem to get by. OK, um, so there's that. The other hypothesis is differences between presentations between siblings is sometimes and I've totally seen this as I was talking about earlier, we got to think systemically. 
younger siblings are looking towards their older siblings and understanding what's happening. Younger children don't exist in a vacuum, right? They know they're in a system, right? So let's say you're five and you're angry at your mother, but you know that your older sibling is going to yell aggressively at your mother at some point during the day. Well, as a five-year-old, you might be like, well, I want to yell at my mom right now, but you know, I know my older sibling is going to yell at her. So I'll just wait for that to happen. And that will make me feel better. I've seen that happen before. We're totally seemingly calm, you know, collected model student kids. As soon as their older sibling who is aggressive moves out of the house, the next kid in line will then take on the mantle of being aggressive with, with the mom. I saw that happen with three, with three kids in a family I treated once where the oldest kid was totally aggressive with the parents and the other two kids were angels. Then the oldest sister moves out and then the parents are like, okay, finally we got her out of the house because she wanted to move out. She's like, get me out of the house. And you know, they got her out. And then the next daughter in line instantly started to turn massively aggressive, totally different from her previous behavior. And the whole time we're like, well, at least you have your youngest kid, the son, who, you know, isn't doing anything aggressive to the parents. And he's the sweetest boy. And, you know, surely he's never going to do anything. I mean, look at these other two kids. You know, they're really awful. And we're talking like really awful towards the parents. And then, lo and behold, the, the middle sibling, the daughter moves out of the house and the youngest boy totally turns on his heels and becomes super aggressive and abusive towards the parents. It's a very interesting phenomenon that can only be explained through systemic ideas. Um, not only in the way I'm saying it in terms of siblings looking at each other, but also that maybe a larger systemic problem was at play, which I definitely looked into and, and tried to treat, in that it manifests in an aggressive teenager. Like you just have like general tension in a family for uh, because of difficulties with attachment between its members that results in someone needing to take on the role of the aggressive, angry, truth speaker, that kind of thing. But anyway, so to answer your questions, anonymous patron, could that early interaction with us have been the cause of preoccupied attachment? Absolutely. Um, you say, uh, is it possible that we have harmed her? Um, Every parent harms their kid. I say this all the time. Um, it, there's no way to parent a kid in a way that the kid will not be harmed. There's no way to parent a kid that will not result in the kid not needing therapy later in life. Parenting is impossible. It's impossible to do perfectly, even on a daily basis. You know, parents, if, if, if I videotaped any given parent, I guarantee you there would be mistakes made every single day, even for the most, uh, you know, uh, calm and best, most secure parent on the planet. So is it possible that you harmed your kid? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm 100% sure you harmed your kid. Every parent harms their kid. It's just a matter of degree. So, um, you know, and I've also said before that uh, my conceptualization of attachment is that no one is 100% secure attachment. Everyone has at least some percentage of insecure attachment. And I would say that the most secure people on the planet have 10 to 20% insecure attachment. And that's all from attachment injury growing up. 
So, you know, there's just no way to not harm your kids. It's just a matter of degree. Um, the last thing I'll say is, as you go down this discovery for yourself, patron, try to take it easy on yourself. That's why I'm saying every parent harms their kid, because I, it, the question of, oh, my God, did I harm my kid? It's like, just answer the question, yes, I harmed my kid. Everyone harms the kid. Then the next question is like, should I have done something different? Well, the answer is, you didn't know any better. You didn't, you know, the, the, you said something like that our kid was very anxious and um, we would leave her alone in the room to cry out all night. Uh, and, you know, because we, uh, well, you didn't say why, but I suspect I know why. It's because you come from my generation, which is a generation of kids who were uh, taught that that's the way you're supposed to do things. You're, you know, you're supposed to surely, you know, be with a kid from zero to three months or something. But after that, they need to learn how to sleep in the crib in their own room by themselves. And sometimes that's a good idea, but sometimes it's not. Often it's not, actually, until they're, I don't know, two years old or something, maybe one. But uh, particularly early in life, it's really not natural for them to be apart from their parents for very long, um, unless they're very easygoing kids, because some kids are. Some kids, like, conk out. You can put them in the crib for four hours. You can hear them wake up, and you instantly go to them. Um, but some kids really have a harder time with that and it compounds. So, you know, you leave them in the room and you're like, okay, I'm just going to close the door. And then they start to freak out and you're like, I'm not going to go to them. They have to learn that they have to sleep in their crib. Well, that just intensifies their fear and their intensifies their, um, fear that you're not going to be there for them. And then they just cry more and more and more and they just ramp themselves up. And that's what a lot of parents are told. That's certainly what our culture teaches parents. And so, you know, you did the best you could. Um, and uh, so you can't blame yourself for doing the best that you could based on the knowledge you had available to you. That's all we can do. That's all I can do is the best that I can given what's before me. And if my heart's in the right place, I can't shame myself for trying. <laughs> you know, We can't do that to ourselves. Even when we do something as... Um, you know, horrible as harming our children. It, it is, it's horrible to think about that. It's horrible to think, oh my God, did I, did I harm my child? That's a horrible thing to think about. And it, it's awful. And that's why I tell people, just accept that you have harmed your kid and everyone harms their kid. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do minute by minute? Uh, what are we going to do now that we know? Well, we're going to go to our, you know, you as a mother can go to your kid and say, how about you listen to this deep dive on attachment? <laughs> How about you listen to this podcast that often talks about uh, borderline? Um, more importantly, how am I going to get you into therapy with someone who specializes in borderline? People with borderline can absolutely recover. She's 24. She's young. She's got you know 20 years of really good therapy years ahead of her <laughs> where she can absolutely recover and have um, learn a lot. Uh, have her attachment needs met by you, by her therapist, by her father. And she can be, um, you know, uh, it can be cured. It can be healed. And so that's, that's all we could do is like, okay, I did the best I could. What am I going to, what am I going to do now? All right. Well, I think I only got to three or four emails in the span of two hours. And that's probably enough for today. Maybe I'll do this one again tomorrow and I'll, Maybe this will be like a, a a number of different episodes where I 
try to clear out all these emails. So um, expect another one of these tomorrow in which I maybe talk for two or three hours about emails and whatnot. Thanks for joining me out there. Please, please take care of yourself because you know why, because you deserve it, right? 